You're listening to the International Literature Festival Dublin podcast. International Literature Festival Dublin is a Dublin City Council initiative kindly supported by the Arts Council. For all the latest festival news or to sign up to our newsletter, visit www.ilfdublin.com. You are clearly terrible people. <laughs> I've been told there's still quite a few people in the bar. They were like, what are you like with latecomers turning up, clutching around for the 19 people they said they were going to get one for? And I was like, I would be the last to judge. Let them come in. Whoever's still at the bar, get one in for me as well. I've already drunk half this cider. Hello. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I know I'm not getting much reward in, and that's grand. No, I feel chatty fun. tonight. Okay. <laughs> We repealed the eighth, Catlin Moran. Yes! <laughs> Women, well done. Fucking well done. Bow. Bow to you. Well done. That is amazing. <laughs> I cannot believe what you brilliant bitches have done. That is amazing. <laughs> I've been coming here for the last 10 years and I love gigs in Dublin more than anywhere else. They're always my favourite ones. The first one I did was at Vicar Street and there were two amazing things that happened that night. The first one was that someone came and vomited on the side of the stage <laughs> within three minutes of the gig starting. And I was like, oh, that's unusual. Oh. <laughs> and a security card just came on and he'd obviously gone through this before because he just had a huge box of washing powder with him and he just tipped washing powder on the vomit and walked back off again. And then the second thing we did, you probably know the layout of Vicar Street, thank you, better than I do, but there's sort of, it's like round tables and stools yeah. around them. And I was doing a bit in my set at that time where I was like, I want you all to stand on your chairs and say, I'm a feminist. And, and every other gig I'd done it with, everyone had stood on the chairs and it was brilliant. And I took a selfie and I'd put it on, I'd put it on Twitter and it would be amazing. That night, something seemed to be going wrong. There was lots of screaming, there was lots of crashing. <laughs> I couldn't really see what was happening because the lights were in my eyes and then I finally realised that those stools revolve round and round. <laughs> so basically all these pissed women going, I'm a feminist! <laughs> but they fucking did it. They were determined. So you love Ireland even more now, is that right? Yes, well this is, I mean, the, the, so, the, so Dublin gigs are always amazing, my favourite place to go, but there's always a terrible bit in uh, when I'm doing something on stage where whoever's interviewing me goes, and now we need to talk about abortion. And then I would always remember, again, how fucked up it was here. I would always forget because you just seem like the girls in my town. You know, you seem like all the girls in the UK and suddenly having to remember live on stage how badly you were being fucked over, how you were not allowed to have control of your lives, how you were being forced to breed, forced into these terrible decisions, would always just fill my heart with ice. And also, you know, I've always thought that I would end up living here. And I was like, well, I've got two teenage girls. I can't bring them to live in a country where they don't have that choice. So now it's repealed. I can come and live here. So... <laughs> this is good. So, so on that note, <laughs> I go back to a great-grandfather from Dublin. If anybody can countersign my, my immigration applications or just... <laughs> apparently, the driver that I had from the airport was saying that if someone here can vouch that I live with them, with the a, with a Dublin dress then apparently I will be able to get a, an Irish passport. So if anybody here wants to come to me afterwards and volunteer to say that I live with them so that I can get an Irish passport uh, before next year, before Brexit comes and makes Britain a say, bin fire, oh. then please let me know. I, I, you know I, will, I will pay you back in champagne and gratitude. <laughs> will we talk about your amazing book? It's a brilliant yes. book. Have you all read it? 
There might be some spoilers if you haven't read it. Yes. But I also wanted to uh, uh, say to everyone about you know, what excellent taste they have coming to this gig, because there's a couple of other things on tonight that you could have been at. One is, Pierce Morgan is on The Late Late Show. You could have gone watch that. <laughs> I'm booing Piers, not The Late Late Show. Also, Hozier is playing Across the River as well. Yeah. Yay! Yeah. But you're still at the best thing that's happening in Ireland, I think. When I went to do the Late Late Show, I'd never seen it. And a friend of mine had... <laughs> you were laughing because you had, so you would know how confused I was by the experience. So a friend who'd been on it, I said, I'm going on it, any advice? She went, well, first of all, take a packed lunch. It goes on. <laughs> and then she said, there'll be a point where you're doing the interview and you're talking, you're talking, you'll look out into the audience for the first time and you'll see a nun knitting. <laughs> I was like, oh, she's exaggerating. That's a stereotype. That's a terrible stereotype. I looked up, there was a nun knitting. It was, and that was such a weird show to do. I there was also it. a woman talking about a donkey as well. Well, yeah. it was quite the episode, I must say. <laughs> I feel, I don't know if it's always this insane, but, so first of all, they put me on with Chris Rea's daughter, was it? Rose, uh, Chris de Berg. Chris de Berg's daughter. <laughs> that would be weird. <laughs> Rosanna Davison, I'm who not, had just done her Playboy yeah. shoot, and they, they basically wanted you to have a cat fight. I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to, to, to appear to stereotype people, but all white middle-aged men who used to be in bands look the same to me. So uh, Christopher, <laughs> Chris Rea, literally no idea. Anyway, so it was his daughter, and she's some kind of modelly kind of thing, isn't she? Yeah, she's and, lovely. Um, She's a, no, she's a very nice woman, and no. she does modelling for a living. But, the, yeah. but what they thought they were going to do... No, totally, no, but this was I the mean, thing. They thought that they would set us up as, like, I'm the hairy, angry feminist, and I will hate the modelly type girl. So this was... They'd obviously set this up as a big fight. It was going to be, look, women can't get on together. You're either a feminist or you're a modelly type girl. First of all, we met in the green room. We got on, like, a house on fire. She was absolutely lovely, really funny. Secondly, we heard them in the corridor saying, and we'll get them to fight, ask them some sort of, like, difficult <laughs> questions. <laughs> So, like, being clever, lovely women, we just looked at each other and went, we're not going to have a fucking fight on TV. Let's go out there and just be, like, total women's solidarity and stuff. So we went out there, we swapped shoes. She was wearing a lovely pair of high heels. I was wearing Doc Martens. <laughs> on the show, we were swapping shoes. We were kind of hugging each other. And we had to bond, you know, with solidarity because it was... They had this weird, they had this weird story on about... There was some couple who'd come to this country and they were doing... Now, this, I think... No, it was a man whose wife had died and he was so sad that he decided he was going to do a pilgrimage all around the coast of oh. Ireland on a donkey to just get over his sorrow. Okay. And apparently he was on the third night of his sad pilgrimage, his sad morning thing around his donkey, yeah. the saddest journey ever known. And, um, and he camped up in a field and when he woke up in the morning, the donkey had died... And it had died of a urinary tract infection. <laughs> it had died of cystitis. So, at which point, as a woman, I'm absolutely horrified, because the idea that a man had been sitting on a donkey for three days that had cystitis, like, I was like, I feel like I've been that donkey on many occasions in a relationship. <laughs> kind of like... <laughs> Never been more upset about a dead donkey story. <laughs> I've related too much. So, um, so that was the Late Late Show. 
Yeah. Good. Well, it's happening tonight, but we're here. That's a good thing. Now, yes. how to be famous. Yes. So you were a bit famous yourself, and you've met a lot of famous people. Yes. What have you learned? What well, first of all, I've learned the exact amount of famous that I am. I'm famous in very specific areas. So, for instance, if I go into a vegetarian cafe or a library... <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, if it's a gay club or somewhere where they sell cardigans. Um, <laughs> I'm pretty famous. If I go into, say, I don't know, LK Bennett uh, to buy a pair of Theresa May-like shoes, not a sausage. <laughs> no one, no one recognised me at all. So I would say I'm around about 12% famous. In sort of, you know, I'm legendary to a very small community. Um, outside that, no one has a clue who I am, which is, which is a fantastic level of fame to have. And I chose that level of fame because since the age of 16, I've been interviewing famous people. And I've noticed what happens to you when you're famous. And it's generally quite a horrible procedure. I've known so many people who've sort of started off as brilliant artists, and then... I mean, if you think about what the process of being famous is, I... I'm... Okay, I'm being famous now, <laughs> but this is the only time today I've been famous. When I got up this morning and I had a poo, I wasn't being famous then. <laughs> um, I put on a white swash, I wasn't being famous then. I got in a car to go to the airport, I'm not being famous then. Like, kind of like, all through the day, I've not been famous. Here, I'm being famous now. Tomorrow, I won't be famous at all. Sunday, I'm not going to be famous at all. Um, and you can't sort of... When, um, and like, this was very much brought home to me. When uh, the book came out, I did a photo shoot for The Times, and it was, Catelyn is famous. And we were like, well, what will we do for the photo shoot? Because you can't pictorially represent fame. Like, there's no way that I could sit, or nothing I could do that would show that I was being famous. It, what we had to do was get loads of people pretend to be paparazzi photographers and take pictures of me. You have to show someone's reaction to you to show that someone's famous. So fame isn't in me. Fame is in the minds of people who know who you are, which is a weird and amazing thing. Then it's a collaborative act. Like, you won't know everything I've written and everything I've said and everything I've done. You've taken the bits that are useful for you. And that should be your job as a writer. You write all these things, and then hopefully you, you know, things I've learned, things I've observed. It's my job to sit down and work something out. It's my job to sit down and think about something that you've had a feeling about, but haven't had the time to work out into a sentence because you have a proper job. Uh, <laughs> whereas my job is to sit in my garden smoking tiny little roll-ups and going, let's see if I can put that incoherent feeling into thought and <laughs> give it to people, and that will be a useful thing to do. Um, so that's the, so the weirdness of fame being in the heads of other people and not in you uh, was something I wanted to explore. And the other thing about if you are famous and people know who you are is it is a bit like, and I say this, this is not a, a glib comparison because I have, I have friends who have very severe mental illnesses. It is a bit like being schizophrenic. It is a bit like having voices in your head because you know people have opinions about you and they're talking about you. And until recently, you would just be imagining them. But now, because of social media, you can hear them. People are saying these things to you all the time. You know that people are thinking things about you and feeling things about you and saying things about you and misunderstanding you. And as, as we can see, very often, the course of fame is that this drives people crazy. It, you know, it's an intolerable weight to, to deal with, uh, to the point where most people who are famous will not read any of their press. The sanest ones do not read their press. They prefer not to know about these things. As I found out when I interviewed Paul McCartney, and it went very wrong. <laughs> Tell us about that. Well. <laughs> so easy interviewing Catelyn Moran. It's like... It's like...
Am I too chatty? No, though? Is it, no, no I do be wonder, more chatty. Even more chatty. It's I do fine. wonder. Yeah, yeah. When I did Desert Island Discs, Kirsty Young halfway through went, You're very difficult to interview. <laughs> I was like, So sorry. But doing Desert Island Discs is really scary because when you're sitting there and the music starts up, you're like, Oh my God, lovely Kirsty Young, who I thought was a really nice person, is going to put me on a desert island. <laughs> That's horrible. Why would she? Why would she do that? Don't, please don't put me on a desert island. And then at the end, I was trying to work out what the logic of desert island discs was. Like, kind of like I was like, well, this desert island are all the people who've been on desert island discs on this island. Because <laughs> that very much dictates what my luxury is. Because if Bruce Springsteen is on this island with me, then my luxury will be some kind of contraceptive. And. <laughs> But if the logic is that each person who's on Desert Island is on a separate Desert Island, then my luxury will be a rubber dinghy so I can row to Bruce Springsteen's island. I need to, okay. I need to know what the geography is. Um, Paul McCartney. Anyway, Paul McCartney, yeah. yes. So, <laughs> so I have a very weird relationship in my head with Paul McCartney. Um, when I was younger, I couldn't work out if I wanted him to be my dad. Or my husband. I know, it's so, weird. So I'm already, it's already going to be weird. Obviously, it's going to be weird when I meet him. Um, and what I'm doing most of the time on my way to, to interview him is going, don't tell him that. That would be... <laughs> don't start the interview with Paul. I can't work out whether I wanted you to snuggle me in a blanket or fuck me. Don't start. <laughs> don't open with that. Um, And what I've learned over the years, if you're interviewing someone who you really admire, is that uh, when you first start interviewing people, you'll just go, I really admire you. And what you will do is not ask them a question, but just spend 10 minutes explaining why you really love Penny Lane. And they'll sit there going, yeah, of course you like Penny Lane. It's Penny Lane. And you realize you haven't actually asked them a question. So I was like, so once you've interviewed people a couple of times, you realize that the way that you really show that you love someone is by asking them a very thoughtful question. And one they won't have been asked before, and one that shows that you really have thought about what it would be like to them and you want to know more about them. So I'd spent a very long time thinking about this question and I, I was so convinced I got the best question ever. And the question was, Paul, if you, heaven forfend, got involved in a massive car crash where your face got completely smashed off by a flying fragment of windscreen glass, would you, A, have your face reconstructed as that of Paul McCartney, or would you, B, have another face entirely? say, that of Jeff Lynne from ELO. Did you really ask him that? Yes. <laughs> now, that's a really clever question, because it's like, okay, he's been famous for 72 years, so if he got the chance now, he's going to have to have an operation on his face, if he got the chance now to live out the last years of his life with an anonymous face that no one would recognise as, or as someone else completely different, would he do that? Would he like to see what it would be like? to not be famous, as he has been famous for nearly all of his life, or is he happy to continue being Paul McCartney? Is he happy to be famous for the rest of his days? That's why it's a really clever question. It's a really clever question. It's a genuinely top-notch question. Paul didn't see it that way. Paul went, oh, oh, that's horrible. Horrible girl. Paul McCartney, my dad stroke lover. Still haven't worked it out. <laughs> Called me a horrible girl. Um, and I've not interviewed anyone famous since. It was so traumatic. Well, speaking about possibly having sex with Paul McCartney. Yes. There's a lot of sex uh, in How to Be Famous. Yes. Some 
very bad sex. Yes. Some good sex as well, towards yes. the end, which is lovely, but some very bad sex. And one of the things that Joanna in the book talks about and comes to realise is that um, often, as a young woman, sex isn't something that you sort of partake in, that it's something that is done on you or yes. to you. Yes. And I'd like you to explore that a bit. Yes. I think some people might recognise that. <laughs> Well, this is the thing. I wanted it to be... There, there were several themes that I wanted to explore in the book. Fame, which we talked about a bit, and sort of, and, you know, the power that it gives you, the journey that it will take you on, whether you use it correctly or not, whether you're the kind of person who's going to learn from fame or let it destroy you, which I, I feel like I, I cover in the book quite well. Um, <laughs> and then I wanted to write about sex, and I just hugely enjoy writing about sex when everything I knew about sex was from what I read um, as, as a teenage girl. I learned, and it was, you know, it was a pre-internet time, so that was the only way that you could find out about sex. And I wanted it to be very, very specific. Um, I found it quite confusing if people dealt in euphemisms. For instance, the books of Jilly Cooper, uh, Riders and Rivals, which I love. I hear a titter here, I hear a murmur, a slow, sexually satisfied murmur from girls who've read those books. Yeah. <laughs> Ah, the summer of 92, I had Rivals by Jilly Cooper and a <laughs> bottle of mum deodorant, and that was... <laughs> when I became a woman. <laughs> but even lovely Jilly, who would usually be quite, you know, sort of forthright about what was going on, would use weird euphemisms, like, for instance, she would talk about bushes, and I wasn't really sure what that was. Like she means pubes, and then she generally means sort of genitalia. But at 13, I couldn't be sure if she was absolutely talking about vaginas or a hedge. So <laughs> when I first started sexually experimenting, I'd just sort of like stand near a hedge, with sort of fingers on both, just in case. I don't know. Um, or like in 19th century books, they'd kind of have like a little dot, 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 kind of like, you know, kind of like, you know, their bodies commingled in ecstasy, dot, dot, dot. And I was like, no, 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 not dot, dot, dot. <laughs> not slow fade. Where are the hands? Where's the bum? Is the finger going up the bum? Where are my tits? What face should I be doing? What am I supposed to say? Um, you know, what are the things that I need to be aware of here? Um, so I wanted to write very specifically about sex. And there are three kinds of sex in the book. There's bad, horrible, abusive sex uh, with the bad man that she meets. She meets a, a bad rock and roll comedian uh, from the uh, mid-90s uh, who isn't based on any living sexy comedian from the mid-90s <laughs> at all. Just, just want to make that very clear. <laughs> Revenge is sweet. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I wanted to write about that because I don't think it occurs to you, because you're not specifically told. You really do need to be told at maybe the age of 10 or 12 when you first start hearing about sex on the grapevine that it's something that might happen to you later in life. You need to be told very firmly this. Sex is something that involves two people. <laughs> it's not something that someone's going to do on you. Your ideas must be 50% of this exchange. Kind of, this is something you're in together. The whole point of this is it's, you know, sex is a thing that you're doing together. It's not someone else's plot that will occasionally intersect with your life. You get to say things. You get to have some lines. This is part of your plot too. Um, so I wanted to write about bad sex where that's not happening. And then I wanted to write about good sex because I'd never really read a very technically specific uh, description <laughs> of sex that someone could wank to, basically. What I wanted to do was write a whole chapter with a great shag in it so that if I could make at least one 13-year-old girl masturbate for the first time, I would... I would... know that I had done my job. Because it should be a friendly... I, I don't understand how we, as a species, have managed to screw up sex. 
I mean, it's, it's something that costs no money. Uh, it doesn't make you put on weight. Uh, it makes you feel very cheerful and chilled afterwards. Um, and sadly, because, you know, for this, you know my, mine was the last generation without online pornography, but now the majority of teenagers learn about sex from online pornography. That's, it's over 90% of people, that's where they first see sex. And I just want to go into schools to the massive disruption of whatever maths lesson is going on at the Times <laughs> and say, just so you guys know, pornography isn't sex. Like, pornography is show business. Like, it's a business transaction. Those people aren't having sex. They're at work. That's, when you see a man who looks like Burt Reynolds bumming a woman across a landing, that's, that's not what you should be aiming for. That's, it can be better than that. And all the sort of the recurring tropes that you have in porn that I don't understand, like, you're, again, you're not seeing sex, it's such a weird, it's a surreal experience to watch pornography when you've been having really nice sex for the last three decades of your life. You're kind of, these recurring tropes, like, repeatedly smacking girls on their asses, like they're, like a racehorse being kind of, like, galloped over the finish line, like, you know, in the odd fruity smack here and there, if that's what you're into, but like this constant... It's like, I can't go any faster. Like, kind of, I'm not... There's not... There's nowhere to go. I'm on a bed. Like, where? What would I do? And then this other thing that most of it now ends with someone coming on your face. Like, kind of like... You know, I generally think that when, you know, a man sort of ejaculates on your face, it's something that tends to happen once, and then you go, you know what? <laughs> There's nothing in this for me. Like, <laughs> okay, I'm, just, I'm, I'm, pre I'm presuming every woman who clapped there has done this the first uh, time someone comes on your face. I'm just you're thinking, going, you're going. Oh, yeah. Thank you. That was that was lovely. Thank you. I'm thinking. No, of, no don't of worry. My, uh... I'm just I'm just crying from sexual happiness. It's fine. I'm just. No, no, I'm blind, but it's okay. No, that's fine. I'm just thinking of my lovely young nieces that are in the audience. Oh, really? <laughs> but How old are they? <laughs> How old are they? Oh, 15? Oh, it's like I'll get into trouble now. So. Really? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know which of you was here, okay? 17 and 13. Oh. Old enough, it's grand. I'm so sorry. <laughs> None of that ever happens. It's all a bad dream. Don't worry. <laughs> Your feminism is going to make it all better. Don't worry. I have to say, I, I sometimes tell my family what things I'm doing, and sometimes there's like tumbleweed, or people think I'm showing off or whatever, and I put this on the family WhatsApp, and suddenly it's like, oh, uh, yeah, so like, there's a lot of them here. Raise your hands. <laughs> Ingalls Massive, raise your hands. Where are you? Let's have a look. <laughs> They're loud. <laughs> Fuck me. How big is your family? There's <laughs> eight of us. Wow. Well, they're all here tonight, and I think we've all brought plus ones. That is a huge roar. Hello! She's um, brilliant. Well done. <laughs> Revere her as a goddess. Yes, listen to Catelyn. She um, got me this necklace. Let's all admire this necklace for a minute. I was not wearing this an hour ago. This is, you can already admire that this is a fabulous piece. When you turn it over, it has a picture of David Bowie on the back of it. <laughs> David Bowie, naked from the waist up with his nipples on view. Just there. Oh, right, sorry, yes. <laughs> Bowie, nipples. Oh, God, there's people over there. Oh, hello. <laughs> Shit. Well, hello. Maybe I should do the next five minutes pointing at you. <laughs> okay, I'm going to do this question looking at them, because that's, although I do look good from the back. <laughs> I feel you should get some face now. Okay. Ask me the next question, well, I'm going to do gonna, it to I was just going to tell everyone that necklace is from Om Diva, which is one of the best shops in Dublin. 
So that's the first thing. But let's, let, why don't you tell them more about sex? Maybe some, some uh, other things. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> so uh, there's, a, there's a bit in the book where I describe, I'll be back to you guys in a bit, because this is, you know, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. So I'm, I'm just being very Spock on that, but, but this one's for you. Um, so there's a description in the book of, the, of what a classic bad man is and how, as a young woman, you basically need to be given a sort of safety list really early on about how you can identify a bad man so you don't go back to his house and have sex with him. And I compiled this list while I was having a very boozy dinner with some friends. And uh, we went through the whole list, and it was uh, a Betty Blue poster. Um, uh, <laughs> lots of jazz. Um, oh, okay. Ironic statues of the Virgin Mary. That's always bad. Um, <laughs> Although I have to say, one of the f we were t <laughs> I put it in the book. We were talking about how there aren't words for because female sexuality still isn't written about. And one of the things that tells you that sex isn't written about enough is the fact that there are so many words for spunk and sperm, but there are no words for female moisture when you get wet. And so we were sort of brainstorming uh, phrases that were you know names that we could give female moisture. And uh, my boyfriend at the time, who was a very guilty Catholic, said, "How about the Virgin Mary's guilty tears?" <laughs> Oh. You can all use that if you want. <laughs> so running through this list of all the things that you, if you see in a man's flat, you need to run. Complete, walks of the, complete works of Frank Zappa. That's always a big one. Frank Zappa fans, bad people. Uh, all these posters, all this stuff. Oh, Somebody's uh, laughing very much yes. in the front row. Yeah. Jack Kerouac, Henry Miller. <laughs> you, you shagged him too. You've this, this, this rec tonal recognition here. So get to the end of this list in the book, and I'm just like, and that's how you recognize a bad man. And then someone was like, well, how, what are the good men? How, how can you recognize a good man? Who should I be having sex with? And I said, just simply look for these, uh, these attributes. One, he should have the physique of a womble. <laughs> Two, he should wear a cardigan. He should have many cardigans. <laughs> Oh, fucking box of cardigans. And three, when you get home, he'll say, shall we have a baked potato? It'll take an hour to cook, and I'll go down on you until it's ready. That's... Um, Callan, are you just describing your lovely husband, Pete? I was going to say, readers, I married him. Oh, yes. <laughs> the cider's all gone. Oh, more cider for Callan, I think. Please, it's my talking juice. <laughs> It maketh chat within me. There's, um, there's a lovely part of the book which I found actually quite moving. Joanna is, uh, has this great friend in this um, amazing pop rock god called John Kite. And um, he's kind of getting a bit fed up with his female teenage fans who are all very adoring and lovely and love him very much. But he's kind of thinking, oh, he's, he's a bit over it, the screaming and all that kind of thing. And Joanna writes a letter to John Kite to, to sort of explain to him why he's completely missing something. Yes. And as someone who went to Wham when I was 14, I think it was 1984 or something like that, and wrote this 12-page letter to George Michael, wrapped it in a lot of tissue paper, and, and then I lost did, it. Did you game. think you were going to marry him? Yes, I did. And that was a... That was, very that was a journey you went on there, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was a journey. And I lost it at the gig, and I spent like half an hour after the gig going through Coke, things, trying to find it, because I was just mortified if anyone else found this thing and read it, and then, not George Michael. Anyway, so I recognized that sort of pure, 
beautiful love that when you're that age and you really, really like a band or like somebody, that it's just so amazing. And that get men, like in Britpop is the era that the book is set, and they kind of get a bit over it, and they don't really want it anymore. They want cool male fans. Well, this is why I wrote about this. It was something that I saw time and time again. So I'd moved down to London in 93, two years before Britpop, so I knew all the kind of people who were in bands at that point, and then a lot of them became really big around about 95 with Britpop, and usually at a point where they'd become sort of much poppier and much more accessible because pop was in the air. That was what we were doing. It was Britpop. Um, and they suddenly gained these... New Previously, they'd had kind of like, you know, 10 cool indie blokes shuffling at the back, just kind of going... <laughs> Um, and then suddenly they had all these teenage girls down the front who were screaming and loving them and sending them to number one and kind of, you know, and selling out their arena tours. And so many of them reacted against this. So many of them in interviews would kind of, they'd be needled by the journalists kind of going, oh, well, you're not as cool as you used to be. You've got all these screaming teenage boppers down the front. And, you know, they were young men and they were kind of, you know, they were being ragged on by other young men and they'd sort of go, yeah, no, you know, sort of, oh, no, it's horrible. Like, kind of, you know, I don't like these screaming girls down the front. You know, I don't feel like we're cool anymore. And quite a few of them reacted against this huge, brilliant fame and love from their teenage fans and subsequently recorded really inaccessible albums that went in at number 472. <laughs> and I think one of the guys in the bands that I'm writing about was actually the cab driver that picked me up from the airport tonight. So it's kind of that's... And quite rightly so, because this idea that you have to shit on your teenage female fans, this idea that female love and fandom is, makes you unworthy, makes you lesser, that somehow a girl loving you is humiliating to you. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Oh, thanks. Thank you. Thanks thank so you. What kind of mad bullshit is that? What kind of weird self-loathing, ultimately self-defeating and horribly misogynist feeling is it inside you that if a girl loves you, that makes you shit? This is appalling. And all of these bands would quote the Beatles as being one of their biggest influences. And it's like the Beatles had millions... The Beatles would not be the Beatles unless they'd had millions of girls screaming at them. But, you know, those teenage girls understood them and adopted them before anyone else. Mm. The Beatles were kind of like teenage girls, if you think about it. Um, mm. You know, they grew their hair long, like girls. They wore pointy, uncomfortable shoes, like girls. When you see them in those press conferences or in their films, the way they're playing with each other in pillow fights and kind of, like, slyly <laughs> negging each other and then grooming each other and supporting each other and looking after each other. <laughs> That's like girls out in the pub. Like, it was a very feminine love that, you know, I think the Beatles were the first big girl band in the world. Like, I don't know if this is... Um, yeah. So this is all the stuff that Johanna puts in this letter to John Kite, who's become sadly misguided and thinks he needs to shit on his teenage fans. And she just tells him, basically, pull yourself together. How could you... When you slag off teenage girl fans, I'm a teenage girl. Like, how could you reject me? Those are my kind. In the end, if I have to fall in with any group, if I, if I have to claim any gang as my own, it's not you cool indie boys, as much as I love you and admire you, I will always be from the tribe of teenage girls. And I still feel that now at 43. I just think that purity of love, that kind of, you know, to be a fan is a beautiful thing. Because a fan is just standing at something that is brilliant and beautiful and going, I love that. Mm and telling other people why it's so beautiful and brilliant. And that is one of the most important things you can do as a human being. You know, if you see the world as like a circuit board, you know, with all this electricity running through it, every time you're negative and shitty about something or slag something off, you're stopping flow and electricity. And every time you're positive about something and share it with people, you're just letting that electricity mm. flow around. And, you know, particularly now with things as they are politically and socially, you know, I think it, you, when you realise the cumulative effect you have, if you're either being, a, you know, if you're either letting things flow through you or you're blocking them, if you're positive or negative, you know, we're living through an area where most people's default thing is to be angry and to block things and to only point at bad things. If every day we all pointed at two good things on our social media when we're talking to people, just in conversations with people, I think the step change would be massive. Uh, 
they like that. So you, you kind of went through that yourself as um, a music journalist, didn't you? Because you yes. were first of all started off. And oh, by the way, I just want to say I'm wearing this very nice watch. What's um, that watch, Rudy? It's, it's, a very <laughs> it's a Rolex. It's a Rolex. Yeah. It's not mine. <laughs> I, I, I had to have a watch, and then Catelyn said, you can have my Rolex, and it's the only time I've ever worn I didn't one. say you can have my watch, I said, you can have my Rolex. <laughs> yeah, um, it. it was given, I would never buy anything like that myself, I am head to toe in Zara. Um, but uh, <laughs> my very dear friend, John Niven, who wrote the book Kill Your Friends, we're writing a film together at the moment, and when we finished the script, he said, I'm going to buy you a present, and he took me out for dinner, and he gave me a Rolex. Um, and I went, oh my God, I can't believe, fucking hell, that's insane. You've bought me a 600 pound watch, that's crazy. I was thinking of getting one when she said Okay, yeah, you're ahead of this. I went home and then Googled it. £6,000? You can't... T it looks like something from Argos. No. <laughs> I mean, I love that he gave it me. I take it everywhere, but you can't tell, can you? That's not, that's not six grand. I mean, it needs to have £6,000 written on it for it to have any real influence or cachet, I feel. What were we talking about? Sorry, before I. What were we talking about? We were on. I was talking about. Usually talking about sex. Was I talking about sex? No, we weren't. We've talking done about spunk. Sex. We've done. Yeah, Mary, Virgin Mary's tears. I've done vages. Um, oh well, the other thing in the book. So the character of. Um, so the other big character in it. So so Johanna sorts out. The idea is that Johanna's seen John Kite going off the rails with his fame, and she decides to be a fame doctor. She's going to give him advice and school him through this weird process of being famous and give him advice in her column. But then she's getting advice. She finds this feminist mentor who's a girl called Suzanne Branks from a band mm. called The Banks, who I invented and wrote because there was a part of me that always wanted to be in a rock band, and unfortunately my singing voice sounds like a goose being hit by a wolf, so that kind of... <laughs> Well, that didn't stop Courtney Love, but I thought we probably shouldn't. <laughs> Susanna um, reminds me I of love Courtney, Courtney Love, Love, by the way. Well, it is it's, based on Courtney Love. Because there's a great line that she said to you in an interview once, wasn't it? Like, basically, stop eating... I, so I met, so I went to interview Courtney Love for the first time. I'm 16. Uh, she's my biggest hero. I love her to bits. And I walk into the uh, photographic studio. It's 2 o'clock in the morning in Seattle. And, uh, and I, I can't believe I'm just about to meet my heroine. This is amazing. And as I come in, she just went, Catelyn, you're Catelyn, aren't you? I used to be as fat as you. The secret is, don't eat cheese. <laughs> yeah, that's the secret. I mean, it's true. <laughs> um, so so, so she's, she's very much based on Courtney Love, but I wanted to also have, I wanted to write something about a girl having a female friend or mentor um, that she doesn't fall out with. Like, so often if you see a female friendship in a book, you know at some point they're going to have a massive falling out. One of them will betray each other, or they're going to turn on each other, or they'll have some huge misunderstanding, and that's the kind of sad midpoint of the book, and then they have to work to a resolution at the end. And I was just like, I've seen this a million times. I haven't fallen out with any of my female friends. Like, kind of, you know, it lasts sort of like 10 hours at most, and then I sober up and go, I'm really sorry, that was a dickish <laughs> thing that I said. Um, uh, and then we retrieve my shoes from the well, and we carry on with our holiday. And... So it's like, I want to write about a female friendship that doesn't go wrong. Um, and, uh, and she takes sort of Johanna, she's sort of, Johanna, this is the second book where we've seen her, and Johanna's a really big girl, and, uh, and she's completely alienated from her body, which I think is a very common thing. I can remember all the time that I was growing up thinking that if, you, if you'd asked me where my body was, I would tell you it felt like it was about three miles away, like kind of, and that maybe at some point, 20 years in the future, I'd catch up with it. Like it felt, I just felt like a head in a jar. I was very disconnected from all of this. And the only time that I would ever come back into my body and feel that I actually had a body was either when I was taking drugs or having sex, which is 
<laughs> why the first 10 years of my life were, uh, of, uh, why, the, why the years between 16 and 26 were full of that. <laughs> and, um, and so, but gradually I've learned to come into my body and feel happy in it. And the things that Suzanne is telling Johanna about her body are the things that I've learned. For instance, swimming in cold water will get you higher and happier than anything else you've ever done. I haven't done drugs for so many years now because I've discovered cold water. Just jumping <laughs> cold water is an amazing thing. Like kind of, when you first get in really cold water, it feels like you're just being choked by a huge giant's fist and you're going to die. And that's for about one second. And then you have this huge burning rush right through you. And then you start swimming in this cold water and you feel clearer and happy than anything, any other point that you've had in your life. And when you get out, you're buzzing for about four hours afterwards. And that's just cold water. Like, kind of, that's... If someone had told me that jumping in cold water would make me stop hating my body and feel happy and content in myself when I was 16, I would have saved so much money on smack. That would have been... <laughs> just a quick point, I've never taken smack. I'd, I'd heard... <laughs> Tell them even, at, even, at, yeah, even at the age of 16, <laughs> I'd heard that it was generally a bad idea. It's, it's very Moorish, and I was like, no, I've, <laughs> I already have enough of a problem with cheese. I'm sure, <laughs> sure heroin would be even worse than brie. I will draw the line there. Um, I can't believe it's like, is it eight years since how to be a woman? Eight or nine or something, was it? Seven yes, so? yes, so it's coming to the 10th anniversary, which is why the next book that I am writing is a sequel to How well, to Be a Woman. It's amazing how much has happened in that time, and when you were writing this book, the whole Me Too thing was kicking off, and there's a kind of a Me Too strain very yes. much in the book as well. Well, totally. In, um, uh, in How to Be Famous, I'd known that plot because it's the second of a trilogy. Um, about Johanna. And so I'd known that the plot was about her having sex with this famous man and it going very sour. Uh, I don't want to sort of spoil the plot for people, but it's basically a Me Too novel. And I'd started writing it a year before Me Too happened, and then I was halfway through writing it, and it kicked off worldwide. And there's, it's a very rare and amazing thing in a writer's life that when you're writing something that's also the news, that's, mm. that's an incredibly exciting place to be. You're like, wow, I can, make, I can show someone the entire story of this, how it happens. When people are going, well, why would you be in a room with that guy? Why would you have had sex with him? Like, kind of, you know, how could, how could a woman let herself be in that position? Okay, well, here you are. This is, these are the kind of situations you'll be in where this will happen. Um, but since the Me Too things kicked off, I wrote a piece for, uh, what's it, New York magazine um, that went viral. I don't know if, uh, who here has read it or not, but about sort of sexual abuse and Me Too. And I was saying that it's very important that in the Me Too debate, which has been an amazing thing, and I think is one of the big transformative things that's happened in my lifetime, that we don't make category errors. So the Me Too hashtag has allowed women to talk about all the bad sexual experiences they've had, and it's very important that we put them in the right category. There's type one uh, 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 behavior, which is criminal behavior. It's rape, it's sexual assault, it's bullying, it's non-disclosure agreements, it's, it, it's illegal stuff that you'll go to jail for. It's Harvey Weinstein stuff, that's Me Too. Then there was a second tranche of stories that came past that were things like the comedian Aziz Ansari, who had a really bad date with a woman. He was horrible and creepy and it was really unpleasant. Um, and there was also the cat, uh, cat, cat lady cat woman lady, story, yeah. um, which is about kind of a woman who sort of like, she did want to have sex with him and she didn't. It was really unpleasant. And they were brilliant sort of nuanced studies of how women could be in unpleasant situations. But we have to be clear, that's not criminal behavior. That's horrible, awkward, ignorant behavior. That is men and women not knowing how to be around each other. It's particularly men not knowing how to have sex, mm -hmm. how to talk to women. But it's very important that we don't put that under the category of criminal behavior. This is, this is an educational thing here. These men aren't trying to make women unhappy. They're just ignorant. 
They just don't know. We're not having those conversations where we talk about what sex should be, about being respectful about each other, around each other, about being polite. I think it's very important that we're very clear about the definitions between those two things, because if you lump all the behavior into one category, then you are very understandably going to have a massive backlash against that, with people going, well, look, this is just a guy, you know, who, you know, who wasn't a bad guy, like, this was a really bad date, mm. and it's like, well, yeah, let's keep those two things separate. They're both bad things, but this is criminal behaviour. Yeah. This is something where people need to be educated. This is, this is where society needs to advance. These guys just need to go to jail. That, there's a very big difference between the two. Yeah. Um. I presume a lot of you read How to Be a Woman. Can we have a... Yeah. Thanks. Well, it, it paid is. for these shoes. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is interesting that so much has changed. So Me too happened. But also, feminism or kind of Western feminism has become a lot more inclusive. Yes. And that's something that's happened in, you know, in the last years. And, and I presume you'll be exploring, and you do explore in various different ways. Oh, hugely, yeah. I mean, that was, I mean when I wrote How to Be a Woman, uh, no one was really, the reason that I wrote it is because no one was really talking about feminism at that point. And I'd wanted to write a book about feminism for years and I thought that I would have to go away and study it and research it and re read all the great books and then kind of do a very careful academic treatise. And then I was given a five month deadline and just went, I'll just talk about <laughs> wanking. <laughs> um, but it that makes do, a lot of sense yeah, actually though, yeah, I didn't yeah. know that. <laughs> I'll just talk about wanking. <laughs> this and then this. Um, uh, <laughs> But since then, the conversation about feminism has grown so much, we're not scared of using that word anymore. It's being talked about all the time. Like, every week there's a new sort of development in feminism, whether it be intersectionality or you know, uh, the, the trans versus turf wars that we have at the moment, uh, ageing, money. You know, there is a Marxist-feminist kind of crossover that we're going to need to talk about at some point. Um, so, I, you know, I, I want to write about all those things and ageing, um, uh, but also still a lot of wanking um, and kind of, you know... But all these things, like, will still be funny and accessible um, but it's a so the title of it's going to be more than a woman mm. and uh, my friend the broadcaster Lauren Laverne he's just about to take over from Desert Island yeah. Discs when I told her the title uh, she said the subheadline it should be called more than a woman open brackets because this shit just gets worse close brackets <laughs> Because as you age, like, you think that you've kind of done, like, all the sort of big heavy lifting of your life, sort of by the time you get to your early 30s, you know, you've kind of worked out what your signature perfume is, and, like, you know, you sort of know what you're going to wear, and, uh, you know, you kind of, you know, you basically worked out who you are, um, and then suddenly it's a bin fire, because <laughs> the next 10 years of your life, your 30s and 40s, you know, everything just starts falling off. Um, there's a really weird phenomenon whereby all your clothes go shit overnight, like... <laughs> I mean, the fuck? What? It's worse than moths. You literally open your wardrobe. The day before, you had got the perfect capsule wardrobe. You suddenly open your wardrobe and all your clothes are going, I hate you. We all got together in the night and we hate you. We're going to sit on you weird. We're going to make your tits look lumpy. We're not going to do up around the waist. We hate you. Fuck off. Um... And uh, parenthood and, sometimes happens well, to that, some people. Well, and that's the other thing. Like, what you realise is the problems that you had generally sort of up until your 30s are one of identity and constructing yourself and self-expression and working out who you are and trying to gain some confidence. And you might just about have got that sort of sorted in your early 30s, and then suddenly the, the whole paradigm changes. It's a whole other tranche of problems, and they all are basically around the fact that women are society. Suddenly, the problem isn't you. 
Your problem is other people. You have to become a support system to children, to teenagers, to friends who are going through divorces, through elderly parents, uh, friends who are sick, uh, people who are having nervous breakdowns, someone who's freaking out at work. You're, you know, you've got your own business. You are suddenly, you know, basically micromanaging 10 or 15 people's lives. That's the next part of your life. Uh, you're some, like some kind of weird business consultant kind of going in, like waking up in the morning, sort of like your friends just calling in. I've been up all night. I took ketamine by mistake. <laughs> Dan doesn't love me. You're like, hang on, can I put you on hold? Call a one, call a two. <laughs> mom, mom, it's me. I can't find my skort. I need 20 pounds and I think my legs are ugly. Okay. <laughs> Let me put you on hold. Call a three. Husband, hello. Yes, what is it? The cat's dying. Okay, hang on. I'm going to put you on four. <laughs> mom, mom. Oh God, I can't even deal with you now. Okay, back to call a one. <laughs> That's basically your 30s and 40s. Um, <laughs> hey, want to book about that. That's good. I've only just realised that's I, that's that's what that's what the first chapter is going to be. I just good. that just came to me Excellent. right then. That so was improvisation. That. That's what it is. You're literally a switchboard. That's what it fucking is. I mean, I also think you should write a parenting book too. Uh, generally, like an, you could write a very funny one. But I remember you saying that uh, your kids would be watching uh, Rihanna on the telly yes. on MTV, and you'd be saying things like, you know, God, Rihanna has so much money, but um, would you never buy a cardigan like put something yes. on her? Absent trousers, Rihanna. <laughs> Although, last laughs from Rihanna are not on me, because like the one brilliant thing that Rihanna's done, and she's the first woman to do this, she's the first famous woman in history to acknowledge the fact that over the course of a month, for no reason at all, depend, it doesn't matter what you're doing, what you're eating, how you're exercising, you will fluctuate between one or two dress sizes over the course of a month, and that is absolutely how a woman's body is. Rihanna has been brilliantly, unashamedly, just out there going sort of like, rocking from like, a, you know, some days she looks like she's a size 12, then she'll go back to enter a size eight, doesn't matter what size she is, she's still just going to be wearing a pair of crusted diamond pants and a huge feather on her head. Um, <laughs> and every time anybody tries to fat shame her, she's just like, I really don't care, I'm Rihanna, fuck you. So, you know, the long game that Rihanna was playing, I was not appreciating at the time. Like, kind of like, she has absolutely educated an entire generation of men. And there's this whole hashtag on, uh, on Twitter now, like, do you prefer Rihanna thick or slim thick, or whatever it is. And on the one hand, it's a bit shit, but on the other hand, most men are saying they're like a bigger, so like kind of, I mean, you take your increments where you can. Like, yeah. kind of that's Speaking of the fat shaming, Tess, Ho Tess Holiday on the cover of Cosmo. Has anybody seen this yeah. cover of Cosmo? Oh, God. Oh, don't and let me talk about Piers Morgan. <laughs> well, he's in Dublin. I think it's kind of amazing. You've got like, oh, who's your feminist icon, you feminist icon, and then we've got Piers last over time, in our team. Last time I was in Dublin, I got everybody to stand up and shout, I'm a feminist. Could I, could I all beg you to stand up and shout, fuck you, Piers Morgan, now? Because it would do me an enormous... <laughs> If anybody who would like to, just, I think we'd all feel better if we did it. Come on, that'd be nice. Oh, I might take a picture of this. This is this one for oh, the photo no. album. So, on the count of, oh, I'm going to video it, right, okay. <laughs> on the count of three, Dublin, could you shout, fuck you, Piers Morgan. One, two, three. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, I feel better now. You. So, Tess, the, uh, Pierce thinks that Tess Holiday being on the cover of Cosmo is promoting obesity. Well, yeah, okay, so, so the, the latest, that particular fuck you, Piers Morgan, was him saying that uh, he thought Tess Holiday appearing on the cover of what show was it, Cosmo or Vogue? Cosmo. Cosmo. Uh, was promoting obesity. Oh, come on. Like, you know, kind of. 
<laughs> how, how, could, how is she promoting obesity when every single, everywhere else you look in society, every other picture you see is, is promoting, you know, kind of like, you know, anorexia, eating disorders, or, or kind of obsessive slimness and exercising. One picture is not going to promote obesity. This is not, you know, this is not a multi-million dollar campaign. It's a woman just standing, Sally Hughes wrote a brilliant column about this going, you know, this is not a woman promoting obesity. That's her body. How else was she supposed to turn up that day? Like, it's, it's not, you know. <laughs> You know, if, if, this, if that cover is Tess Halliday promoting obesity, then she's also promoting having hair, two eyes, <laughs> and wearing shoes. That's just who she fucking is. And, and as Sally said in her piece, like, she's not promoting obesity. She's just saying, I am here, I'm a human being, I'm happy, and I was not broken by your unkindness. That's, that's what that picture says to me. Like, kind of, that's, I think it's an extraordinary moment. Like, yeah. kind of, you know, and then, you know, this, this specious thing, like, yes, there is an obesity crisis. Yes, it does cost, uh, you know, the NHS, like, you know, millions and billions of pounds. But we know, you know, if, if we thought that, you know, fat shaming and making women feel terrible about their bodies and hiding all fat people away and never having them on the cover of a magazine kept people thin, then everyone would be thin, because that's what we've done for the last 30 years. Like, clearly, <laughs> yeah. you know, we couldn't have a more... <laughs> We couldn't have run a more rigidly enforced experiment. Like, you know, we know that doesn't work. So why don't we try something else, which is letting women feel, seeing all kinds of women's bodies, the full spectrum of humanity, having women feel good about themselves and happy whatever size they are, and see if that changes something. Because it's not costing anything, and we've got a fucking brilliant cover of a magazine, you know, a really beautiful picture that I will have on my fridge. Like, kind yeah. of like, how is this? This is a win-win situation. Like, yeah. kind of, let's let that experiment roll on for a bit. You were supposed to go to the GQ Awards uh, the other night. You didn't yes. go. Why did you not go? Oh, because Piers Morgan was there. I mean, it's just, I can't... <laughs> the problem it has, I mean, it, I'd say it's not specifically Piers Morgan, but I mean, it is specifically Piers Morgan. But there is, but there is this really observable thing that's happened in the last 10 years. So I'm a writer and a communicator and broadcaster and journalist, and so I watch all the other writers and communicators and journalists. And 10 years ago, the default thing that all, all white male journalists would have would be being good guys. You know, they would talk in sort of liberal terms, they'd talk about progressiveness, they'd say, yes, of course, I'm a feminist. They'd have kind of like reasonable debates, they would use kind of the language of sort of progressiveness and liberality. In the last 10 years, we've seen there's been a swing to the right. The Overton window has shifted. Trump is triumphant. Farage is still seen as a great guy by many people that they go down the pub with. Kind of the, the language has changed. We're starting to use phrases like libtard and snowflake. This idea that you're virtue signaling, signaling if you're tweeting anything other than I am a massive fucking dick. Uh, you know, kind of like, you know, and if that is virtue, you know, if, if typing something nice and positive is virtue signaling, then presumably the opposite is just signaling that you're a massive cunt. So I would actually far rather virtue signal. Than, than signal that I was an asshole. But anyway, so, so we've seen languages and sort of like, you know, society. It's more fashionable to be right-wing now. It's just slightly cool to be a little bit Nazi on sort of some fringes of, of society now. Uh, sadly, it is. And I've watched there's a handful of columnists and broadcasters and communicators who, as soon as it became fashionable, they too started using these words. Like, kind of. And I've got a list of these people. I know all these people. There are politicians, <laughs> there are columnists. They, they all, they've all, they were all doing this kind of like sort of ironic fascism, just kind of just slightly provocative kind of like, oh, you feminazis, oh, you know, all this stuff. And they, they kind of sheen it up with an irony of, oh, I'm just being a devil's advocate or it's just ironic. But that's what they're saying. That's how they're choosing to communicate. They are helping to set a tone. And 
I believe at the moment this is the high tide for that kind of country. We've come to the top, most fashionable peak. Country is a great word. Yeah. Sorry, I have to just say that. For this kind of bin fire thinking. This is the high tide. In the next couple of years, because everything's a fashion, it will gradually become less fashionable to be a right-wing arsehole than it has been recently, <laughs> because that's how fashion moves. And the tide will slowly go out, and these people's boats will be stranded on the tide line. You know, I will not forget. Mm. I don't think any woman or person of colour or from the LGBT community who's seen these person like Queensland fucks go over to the other side when it was fashionable. I don't think we're going to go when they swing back and start pretending to be nice liberal guys yeah. again. We'll go, okay, yeah, no, that's fine. No, so I'm going to remember you. Like, yeah. you know, when it was really important to try and, to try and still be a good person. You were having a laugh. And you, yeah, was... you were just kind of pissing about with it because it can't hurt you. If you're a rich white man, Politics, politics doesn't affect you. It doesn't matter what government gets in. You've got a second home. You've got a cellar full of wine. You know, kind of, you can borrow money off friends. Like, politics affects poor people. Politics affects the working classes. The worst that can happen to you if you're middle class and rich or upper middle class or posh is that you know, maybe the bins won't get emptied. If politics all goes to shit, the bins might not get emptied. You know, your foreign holiday might cost a bit more. If you're poor, the worst that can happen to you with politics is that hospitals get closed. Your children can't go to a school. They don't get the help they need for mental health care. Uh, you know, you go to a hospital and you don't get your operation and you die. You know, it's anarchy out on the streets. Like, it, the politics is for working class people. It affects you. Mm. Um, so I've got my list. Okay. When, the, shit when list. the tide goes out, <laughs> I will not forget them. Okay. Um, just wanted to ask you where we are with crushing the patriarchy. Where do you think we're at? Uh, what, like the patriarchy on Yeah, yeah. It's a weird one, isn't it? Because, I mean, on the one hand, like, kind of, I can't open a newspaper without seeing the word feminism or another woman coming up Thanks with a new Thanks to you a, new a lot, I think. I think it's... Uh, Callan has done a lot about that. I do. I think you, you started a really good conversation well, in this part of the world anyway. You know? Obviously, I invented the idea of women being equal, and I will, that is copyright me. You and continued something, though. Yes, you know you, what I mean? No, like no, you no, you brought it into a different audience that hadn't necessarily been engaging with it. No, no, and legally, every woman owes me 10% of her income. <laughs> I, I invented the idea of you not being oppressed, and I, I, I look forward to those checks. But, okay, so... So, so we see feminism in the papers every day. We have amazing campaigns. Like, we've, we've repealed the eighth. Like, okay, it's sort of like crushing the paytime here, just here. There's anti-FGM uh, anti legislation, so we're tipping over here. Like, are there more women in business than there were before? It's over here. But on the other hand, we've got Donald Trump, and the patriarchy goes right back over here again. So I'd say it's a mixed grill. That would be my... <laughs> That would be my scientific assessment. Just picturing assessment. some liver. You know, the way yeah. some mixed grills have liver. Yeah, in. yeah, yeah. <laughs> the patriarchy's sour old liver's still on the side of the plate, yeah. One of the interesting things I've... Everything you say is interesting, Karen, obviously, but there, you've talked about... I'll tell you what, by the time that, I finish this one, it won't be, but yeah. <laughs> you've talked about how we need to uh, get more men involved, and I think this is really important, too. Yes. And there's so many good men, and some people sometimes they feel a bit excluded from these conversations, which really they shouldn't be because patriarchy is so damaging to, um, to guys well, thing, as well. Like, so for the last 10 years when I've been doing talks and stuff and we do the Q&A, there's always someone who'll stand up and go, okay, you know, you've got this advice for teenage girls. What advice would you give my teenage boys or what advice would you give to teenage boys in general? And I'll always go, I don't know. <laughs> Women are my thing. I'm busy. I'm doing all of this. I'm, just, I'm doing half the population. Can't you guys sort that out? Um, That's a really and good I would point. Be, do I have to do everything? Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I've started to realise that the people who are asking that question are right. Uh, you know, however crappy and dolorous and terrifying and expensive it is still to be a woman, we have, over the last 20 years, absolutely whole-scale revolutionised our lives. If you think about the options that you had um, available to you 120 years ago as compared to now, 
the explosion is gigantic. You know, we have all these options. We have all this legislation. We have education. We have contraception. We have access to abortion. We, you know, it's not, you know, there's no job that is inconceivable for a woman to have now. Like, kind of, you know, we have a, because we've invented a framework, we've invented a political movement where we communicate with each other, we help each other. As soon as you have a problem as a woman, you know where to go to find help. There are books written about it. In magazines, you are constantly being given advice. Like, as a woman, the idea of what we are has evolved massively. It's unrecognizable what a woman is now compared to what she was 120 years ago. If you then compare what it was like to be a man 120 years ago and now, there's nothing has changed. They haven't really gained anything. Like, kind of, they have stayed exactly where they are. And indeed, because of some of the advances that women have made, they have necessarily lost out because we're sharing the pie out a bit more. So we need, and this is the thing that I find astonishing, why is there no feminism for men? Why are men not now being taught how to evolve in the way that women have? to change, to go, the, these pre, you know, the, the previously male, different part of the whole thing about feminism is things that were previously seen as male traits, we can now do, we can be sexually assertive, we can have a business, we can manage our money, we can have a job. But men are not taking on female qualities because they're still seen as lesser. And this is literally killing men. The biggest cause of death for men under the age of 50 in, in the UK is suicide. Like, kind of because men cannot adopt that female thing of being able to talk about their feelings, finding resources, tapping into a network, finding a way to make themselves happy and improve. So I'm absolutely astonished there isn't an equivalent of feminism for men that will teach them to change and adapt to the modern world. Because men and women are growing further and further apart. Mm -hmm. Like, kind of, this is, you know, women are going off and they've got this amazing future ahead of them, how, often, how difficult it can be and how often we, you know, we keep being dragged back. It, our possibilities still seem infinite. I still... Uh, seems very clear to me that in 50 years' time, women will have progressed even more, and we'll be doing even more incredible things. Men, as they are at the moment, unless something new happens, I don't even know where they'll be, I don't even know what they'll do. So I think we desperately need to help boys, we desperately need to help How men. How do we do that? Well, I'm writing the book now. <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting it. I'm be a sure man. it'll be $7.99 in paperback. Well, that's, <laughs> that's the reason why it's called More Than a Woman, yeah. because um, half of it is going to be about men, because the, the whole point of feminism is it's equality between men and women, and we've never addressed the other half of that. Mm -hmm. Like, kind of like, well, what do men do? And it needs to come from a place of love, because previously, when I, you know, I'm 43 yet now, when I was 20, when I was a teenager, when sort of like in the teenage girls that I write about, or kind of the young woman that I write about in the books that I've written before, men were kind of the scary people who were fucking over me and oppressing me and screwing me out of jobs and stuff. Now I'm 43, the majority of boys that I know are 14 and 15 and 19, they're like friends of my teenage daughters, and I just look at them and think, my God, you know, your sexual education is coming from pornography. That must be terrifying to think that is what sex is. Mm. My friend Laura Bates, who runs the Everyday Sexism yeah, Project, which is amazing, she tells this horrible story about a mum who came up to her after she'd done a talk and said, my 16-year-old son came up to me yesterday in tears and he, him and his long-term girlfriend had decided they were going to lose their virginity together. And they'd started to have sex and he'd started to strangle her. And she just cried and went, don't do that, I don't like it. And he started crying and went, I didn't like doing it either, but I thought that was what women wanted because that's what he's seen in pornography. And I can't begin to imagine what it would be like to be, you know, of the gender where you think, as a, you know, still a child man, that sex is something where you would have to strangle a woman. That's dementing, that's horrible. We are torturing our children in what we tell them sex is. 
You know, we, we, are, we are fucking them up really hard and really badly. And until we start putting alternatives out there and finding, be, giving boys the same, you know, girls know that pornography is damaging for them and that isn't real and that isn't how you should have sex. Where are the men telling teenage boys the same thing? We have got this amazing network. Boys don't. Yeah. Um, speaking of Laura and everyday sexism, I think you'll like this one. I was out with uh, my friend, Simon. She thinks she's here. Simon, are you there? Yeah. <laughs> and um, we were <laughs> talking to this guy, and he said to, he said to Simon, um, so what do, what do you do, right? And we weren't really liking him very much at this point, but anyway, we were trying to be, we were trying to be nice and polite, yes. yeah, yeah. And he said, uh, what, what, do you, what do you do? And Simon said, I'm a human rights lawyer. And the, the man said, what does your husband think of that? <laughs> and then Simon said, I don't have a husband, and what has that got to do with me being a human rights lawyer? And he said, do you not like the clever way I tried to find out whether you had a husband? Or not? But Through amazing. sexism, but amazing. Yeah. <laughs> That's really... I don't even know where that is, because on the one hand, he fancies you, but on the other hand, he's using sexism to find out if he can bang you. Is that good? Is that bad? I don't... That reminds me of the first time that I was sexually objectified when I went to work for Melody Maker, and uh, the, I asked if I could have a cover feature, because uh, I'd been there for a year, and I felt I was time for a promotion, and the editor went, come and sit on my knee and talk about it. And... It was one of those moments where I was kind of like, it was stop, talk to the camera. Okay, cat, let's have a quick catch-up here. <laughs> Until last year, you were a really fat girl in NHS glasses with two plaits who was chased across wasteland by yobs who'd be shouting, you fat lesbian at you, and throwing gravel at you. But now you're being sexually objectified by a quite powerful man. Is this good or bad? Have you, have you gone up in the world or down in the world? Hard to tell. That's the thing about the patriarchy. It keeps you on your toes. <laughs> <laughs> it's always got a new game. Uh, we're, going to, um, we're going to let all these lovely people have some questions. I'm sure you all have questions. Have a, have a little think. But, um, yes, can someone ask me a question about the film of How to Build a Girl? Because I would like to yeah, tell well, you I was about that. I was just about to ask Okay, that. then you don't. Okay, you're yeah. redundant again. No. Back to Rasheen. <laughs> Go. No, I was just getting them ready, getting them thinking. So, they're going, <gasps> okay, yeah. Yeah. so there, was, there was a few questions. I want to ask you about the film of How to Build a Girl. Oh, my God. Um, well, I'm not yeah. ready to talk about that. Oh, come uh... on. You've been really good so far. Like, Don't do what someone did to me once in a live interview. It just was really horrible. You, you don't do oh, that. Oh, thank you. No, yeah. I, tr I try um, not to. No, it's really exciting. You've just wrapped it, haven't you? Oh, it's fucking mental. Yes. Um, so, uh, so it's the film of How to Build a Girl. Um, the casting is amazing. So has anyone seen Lady Bird? Yes. Okay. In it. Yeah. So, um, so her best friend Julie Beanie Feldstein, she is my Johanna, and she <laughs> a squeal. is. Squeal! There was an actual squeal. A squeal! Of it. Oh God! <laughs> Wait till you see her in this film, dude. If you loved her in that, oh my God, she looks <laughs> luminous. Seeing a girl, so she's got the red hair down to here. We've got her in the most adorable things, like kind of like black dungarees with frills and hats, and and seeing her on screen, she's so beautiful. She's so charismatic and so gorgeous that I'm suddenly like, well, this is the future. Like kind of like seeing a big girl who's this beautiful on, see, on screen for every single scene and being the heroine. Kind of, I don't want to see any films about any other girls again. This is, <laughs> this is it now. Give me this girl. Give me, give me her round shoulders and her beautiful bum. Um, so she's amazing. We've got Alfie Allen from Game of Thrones as John Kite. Um, Lily Allen's brother. My, is that Lily Allen's brother? Yes, yeah, Lily oh, Allen's yeah, brother. Yeah, yeah. And my only instruction to him was, you need to put on two stone, Alfie, at least. <laughs> you need to... He played a Nazi the week before we started shooting. I was like, Nazis are thin. No, you need to put on weight. So we, I made him eat a lot of bread. And 
and then the rest, the rest of the cast is office tits. So the, the, so the conceit of the film that I've changed from the book is that every teenage girl has their posters of their mm. heroes on the wall. And that's where you construct yourself. And so, you know, that's, that's, that's the inside of your head, the posters of your heroes on your wall. And in the film, the posters talk to her and give her advice oh, whenever she needs brilliant. it. Oh, and so the heroes and heroines that she has on the wall are Joe March from Little Women, the Brontes, Elizabeth Taylor, Cleopatra, uh, Sigmund Freud, um, and... <laughs> Marx is Marx there? Well, she has a massive argument with Sigmund Freud because Sigmund Freud's sort of saying to her, like, you know, she's sort of having a panic attack and he's going, you know, there are three kinds of anxiety. There's ontic, <laughs> spiritual, and existential. And she's going, I don't think it is that, Mr. Freud. I think I just need some money. That's why I'm anxious. Um, and she beats him. And the, so Michael Sheen is playing Sigmund wow. Freud. Wow. Yeah, we've got Alexi Sale playing the statue of Karl Marx. Is that Hello, John Gottenham Do you remember that? Hello, John Gottenham Motor. I loved him in that. Yeah, he was amazing. Yeah. We've got Mel and Sue playing the Brontes. We've got... Uh, <laughs> we've got We've got Lily Allen playing Elizabeth Taylor. We've got <laughs> Jamila so Jalil cool. playing Cleopatra. Oh. Uh, we've got Gemma Arterton playing Julie Andrews. And then we've got Emma Thompson basically playing Bowie Stroke God at the end. It's like... <laughs> this is going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be amazing. So, and, and it opens with oh, yeah. her in a library <laughs> having written an essay about Mr. Rochester and Jane Eyre, getting so turned on by how much she fancies Mr. Rochester that she starts to wank in the library whilst looking <laughs> at beautiful boys outside to cannonball by the breeders. So that's... <laughs> I like it. Okay, so I'm going to open to questions in a second, yes. but I've got two questions that were told to me by people who couldn't be here. Okay, ready. One of them um, is my mother, mm -hmm. who's uh, 79 and a big friend, fan of yours. Yes. And the other one is another person I won't name, but she, the first person wanted to say, ask about um, this whole thing of people shaving off all the hair on their body, and also women say if they want to do very surgical procedures to themselves. She wanted to know about, is that letting down, in her words, she was saying, is that letting down the sisterhood? Is that bad? Is that, you know, given the patriarchy things or is it okay if she wants to do that imagine if any woman in the world even rihanna was powerful enough that something they did let down all of women across <laughs> the world that's it's just not possible women i you know like like if, if you've ever had a mad insanely self-confident minute where you thought that something you did was letting every woman down in the world <laughs> let me assure you that whatever you're doing to your fanny it's oh, resolutely not affecting 5.5 billion people <laughs> Do what you want in your pants, it's absolutely fine. If you find it onerous and expensive and really fucking itchy, and if you've also noticed that when you shave before your pubes, it does actually make your thighs look a lot fatter, and, and you'd like to be given a kind of excuse not to do it, absolutely stop doing it and blame it on feminism. But okay. if, you, if you like it to look like a slightly scared mouse, then, or, then that's your choice. It's... Be creative, whatever. Like, <laughs> I snorted. Sorry. <laughs> you know, I, I don't. I don't want to be too kind of like. Hey, you do what you want, girls. But hey, you do what you want, girls. <laughs> <laughs> okay, my mother's question's not about that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope that. I presume that was the question for your mother. <laughs> no. I was like, wow. My mother is. The, I think she's probably... It's furry. I thought you were going to say it's furry. I, I was so sure you were going to say it's full I'm of so muff and I'm so glad she had a 70th birthday party to go to and she couldn't come. That would be terrible. <laughs> she uh, is 
the biggest fan of uh, Raised by Wolves, your oh. TV program. She absolutely loved it. She had to ring me after it and just go, oh my God, oh my God. She just thought it was the best TV program. And she couldn't believe when it, it didn't get a second series. Well, and she it was wasn't just very her. upset. Yeah. No, I was... So I was, she said to me um, on text, she said, can you ask her why? This is... You oh, know, just, yeah. Well, I was fucking furious. Um, <laughs> we'd, we'd won the uh, Palme d'Or for best sitcom in Europe. Uh, which means that we had to beat off a lot of Spanish mime uh, to get that award. Uh, we were the third biggest sitcom on Channel 4, but there are weird political things. I mean, you know, if you want to know why most people who are in show business drink a lot of booze, it's because the system is mental and there are about five people in the country who can give you the money to make a TV show. Making a TV show is expensive. Like, you know, it will cost you three million pounds to make a sitcom. And that's not even with like any flying unicorns or, you know, that's just literally some people standing around in clothes from a jumble sale just saying words. Um, but, you know, if the people who've got the money decide they don't want to give you another series, then they don't give you another series. So, but me and my sister, uh, we'd planned the next series. We loved that family very much. Uh, we, we had a... <laughs> We, we knew that Grampy would be a huge fan of Katy Perry's Raw and um, that there would be a sequence where he would be being very passionate to that. And at some point, we will write a musical about that family. So that will be the next. Oh, we will musical. do a bloody musical. Oh, uh, please do a musical. Musicals are the best. They are the best. Um, so we are going to let you all have some questions. And you have a little blurb you like to say about questions. And uh, oh, yes. So when you're, when you're asking a question, this is, this is for your own peace of mind and so that you feel good about the night. Um, just think about what question you're going to ask. It needs to have a question mark on the end of it. It's <laughs> if, if you're going to tell me a story about your life, I want to hear it. Like, I will literally take it and write about it. I will come and talk to you about it afterwards. But you'll notice everyone else in the audience will start to get a bit fidgety. <laughs> When you're about two and a half minutes into this story about your friend who wants to shave their fanny but isn't sure that it's feminist. So just, I knew it was you, darling. Oh, oh okay. my God. I'm too lazy. I'm just too lazy. Sorry, Helen. Um, okay, so that's basically a question mark at the end is, is the thing. Yes, yeah, yeah. Jesus, Kat, I know what you're trying to avoid. You're trying to avoid men going at every Q&A. The voice is coming from the <laughs> You're trying to avoid men going at every Q&A. This is yes. more of a statement, yes. not are a you, question. Are you trapped in this box? Do you need help? Can we get this out? It sounds like there's somebody there's in there. There's a woman trapped in the box. <laughs> it's what, what? Fuck the patriarchy, you've oh, got her in oh, there. Oh, I love you, tell me. <laughs> Hello. Yes, what happened? Tell me. Imagine if I went like a man. This is more of a statement, not a question. Oh, yeah, that's it. That's the one. Every fucking Q&A. But anyway, Kat, hello. Yes, hello. Um, <laughs> as a working class girl, yes. I have been reading you since I was 11, very inspired mm. by you in The Melody Maker. Thank you. And I ended up writing a column in the paper that Roshan writes for about reality TV. And I find that reality TV for me is the only place where I feel that working class women get a fair shot. Totally. As in, if you don't want to be a girl that works in an office or whatever, you go, you make money really quickly and easily. And obviously it can be a very bad thing at the same time. And I get a lot of grief about that because a lot of readers think that this is a bad thing for working class women, or I think, you shouldn't be judged like that. And I just wanted to know your opinion on the girls from that I respect, from Love Island, from yeah. Geordie Shore, from Towie. I think they're all brilliant women that a lot of women who describe themselves as feminists don't 
respect, and I think they should respect them. That's brilliant a question. Really brilliant, brilliant question. Yeah, you're completely right. It is one of the few places where you will see working class people now. Absolutely. Similarly, X Factor is one of the few places that you see a roughly proportionate amount of people of colour. Like, kind of, you won't see them in anything else, but you see them on X Factor coming up and auditioning. It's one of the few ways through. So, but it's it's a it's a it's a levels thing. So as things are at the moment, yes, that is one of the only places that you will see working class people coming through. That does give you a route. If you work through it and you manage to deal with all the trolls and people hating you and being in, having your past investigated as soon as you become famous on a reality TV show, yes, it is one of the few ways that working class women can make money and you know, it could make them millions of pounds. But then you have to do a step back from that and go, well, why is that the only reason? Why is that one of the only places that working class people come through? There was, that, there was much made of that statistic that more people had applied to go on Love Island than they had to go to Cambridge, and everyone was like, oh, what does this say about our society? Well, what it says is that it, it costs you a lot of money to go to university now, and it never used to before. So if you are working class, of course, you're not stupid. Of course you're going to apply to go on Love Island rather than trying to apply to go to Cambridge and end up with £50,000 worth of debt. Like, kind of, it's, you know, pull back and see the bigger picture. So uh, as things are at the moment, absolutely, that's one of the few ways that you, concede, uh, that you can succeed as a working class woman. But, like, pull back and go, well, why wasn't that the case 20 years ago? because you had access to free education, because there was great representation of working class people in the arts, because we had regional arts places, we had regional cinemas, we had um, local arts funding, we would have council initiatives, they've all been cut. There's a reason why there's only posh actors coming through now and posh writers, because you just, if you destroy regional art, then no one's gonna come through. I, I find it amazing when people talk about kind of this brilliant flourishing of working class talent in the 1960s and 70s, all these brilliant writers coming through like Alan Bleasdale and Anthony Hopkins and kind of, you know, and all these brilliant bands coming through and everyone's like, well, they must have been a very special generation. No, they were the only <laughs> yeah. generation, you know, they were the first generation who were given free further education and they had arts colleges and there was a, there was a total arts network that they could go and learn their trade and be, earn money from day one rather than relying on an internship system where you don't get paid uh, so you can only do it if you've got rich parents. So I totally agree, that is probably the only way through now uh, for you if you're a working class woman, but it should not be that. Thanks. Um, Okay. Who else would like to ask a question? That's Mainly because I would never win on Love Island. Like, <laughs> I don't know. I think. You'd... Well, I would. I mean, I'd turn up in a bikini made of bin bags to parody the whole thing, and then I'd just sit there <laughs> talking about just chatting in Marxist feminist dialectic, and I'd be booted off in week one. Like, so uh, it would be. So, question here at the very front. Um, lovely hat. Welcome. I can just come and ask you that question. Go on. Well, you're just there. You're local. Go on. Hi. <laughs> Am I looming over you? Sorry. Am I looming? Can I can get back a bit. Is it a bit loomy? I'll just be. I'll be more cash. I don't want to. I felt. I felt my body language was a bit like uh, and I should be more like hey. Or like this. Should I not look? Is it that? That. Bit of that. Like what? Uh, first of all, how to be a woman is basically my Bible. Jeez, um, I'm full on crying like I'm, I'm one of those Beatles girls. Sorry. Yeah. Good. <laughs> oh. Oh. We'll talk about <laughs> I'm very impressed. Uh, well, it was, it was mainly, I was just, 
I was just, I couldn't handle how people were talking to women anymore. Like, kind of, I'd, I'd, you know, I'd, I'd read all the magazines and I was reading all the books and I was sitting there and absorbing the same kind of culture that we all were. And I just, there was just this one day of revelation where I realized that everybody was talking to women. Like, basically, like, you're a list of problems, sort your minge out, buy this bag and fuck off. And... <laughs> And I, and I had this really vivid <laughs> vision of myself at 16, still hearing all that shit and kind of... And first of all, I was like, oh, God, I was like, if only I could travel through time. Basically, my idea at that point was that I would have sex with David Tennant and that I would go in the TARDIS and then I would be able to go back into the past and look after my 16-year-old self and tell her useful things and try and give her confidence. Then I was like, okay, he is married and I would probably be hit with a legal suit there and the TARDIS isn't real, so... <laughs> although I'm still not convinced of that. And so it was like, <laughs> if I write a book where I'm giving that kind of advice, basically I read it to myself. It was like I was writing a letter to myself at 16 going, here's what I think you should know. This would make you feel better if you knew it now instead of having to wait until you were 32 to, le to learn it. And I, and I just thought, well, there must be other girls out there who would want this. And I just had this very vivid image of putting my arm around women rather than, the, you know, people talking to women like this or like this. Just putting my arm around every woman who was going to read that book and go, mate, this is balls, isn't it? Like, can you believe they're talking to us like this? Can you believe that we've got to the 21st century and women are still being treated like this? Let's have a laugh, but let's also crush the patriarchy. Let's go. Yay. Thank you, baby. Stop it. How's all, you're doing a bit of yoga lately, aren't you? A bit of a downward dog with that sort of thing. Yeah, out? but it oh. was. I, I caught. I caught the edge of the stage with my fanny, and it was. Has anyone else got a question? While Catelyn has a little. What, there's a lady over there waving her hand. Very I need to give props to the labyrinth T-shirt that's happening over there oh. as well. That is absolutely awesome. Yes, <laughs> one of the greatest films of all time ever. <laughs> okay. Oh, yeah, we tried it's to have... person in the, in the tiny box. Oh, hello, yeah, hello. There. Hello. Oh, you can't. oh, sorry, it is working. <laughs> Hi, huge fan. Um, oh. The mother in... We'll, go, we'll get, get oh, you sorry. next, definitely. No, 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 go on. you got the mic, you got the talking yeah, stick. I have the car. Um, the mother in Raised by Wolves is just the best character ever. So um, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. Um, just what I want to ask you, because you have teenage daughters, I have two girls, they're growing up now. You know the way girls hit puberty and suddenly they want to wear nothing? When they're going out, it seems yes. to be. Yes. It seems to be really kind of innate thing, you know. Like before, we could all dress like Julie Roberts in, you know, Pretty Woman by just going to New Look or whatever. Yes. You know, girls rolled up their skirts and kind of opened, you know, buttons on their shirts and all that. So it's like it. It seems to be in girls, but now they can get all these clothes, and you know, I I just see the day coming when the girls are going to go. I want to go out dressed wearing next to nothing and they'll go, you can't tell me what to wear. Yes. And I'll go, well, you know, you should be able to wear what you want, but yeah, you don't want me telling you what to wear, but is the guy who's designed the clothes for Topshop and you look really the one who's telling you what to wear? What do you think? What do so I say? What you're, what you're talking about here is the classic, am I gonna say to my teenage daughter, you look like a slag conversation. <laughs> I didn't want to yeah. use the word, but yeah. <laughs> And, and it's happening as they're going out the door, so you're having this big feminist conversation in your head where slag is a pejorative word and women should be allowed to dress themselves how they are. Nonetheless, my 14-year-old daughter is going out dressed as jailbait. Um, <laughs> she's leaving the house with a police caution accident tape across her tits and nothing else. Um, I would prefer if she put on a cardigan, it is November. Uh, <laughs> 
but how can I explain to her about the patriarchy? She's already telling me her taxi's waiting. Um, <laughs> no, it, it, it is a tricky one. I, I have been there. Um, I think, uh, I mean, the, the way around it that I found was to say, look, if you were going to a gay club, uh, if you were going out to a place that was just girls, then this is artistic freedom of expression, and you can do whatever you want, but everything you wear gives out a signal and says who you are and how you are to be treated. Uh, you know, it, high court judges wear wigs for a reason, like kind of firemen wear those clothes for, for that job for a reason, like kind of I wear leopard skin to give out, you know, <laughs> a signal as a reason. It, cl all clothes mean something and they communicate something. Now, when you're ready to deal with whatever reaction you might possibly get from what you're wearing, then you can go out and wear whatever you want. Like, you have to think of the worst-case scenario, like, kind of. And if you are strong enough to deal with the worst-case scenario reaction that you'll get from what you're wearing, then absolutely do it. But, baby, you're 14, and I don't think you're ready to deal with the kind of reaction that some people might have to what you're wearing just yet. So let me put you on a feminist boot camp. Cancel that taxi. <laughs> We're going to go in the kitchen, and I'm going to shout, sit on my face at you, and... <laughs> If you can't immediately <laughs> respond with something that will stop really a very can't. bad man in his tracks, then you can't go out wearing that outfit. Yes. Um, and, come on. And, and this is why, you know... And people say, people say I'm an inappropriate parent, but yeah. I genuinely think that is how you have to do it. Yeah, but that's <laughs> why I want her to write a parenting book, because mm. we need all that and more loads of things. So just a mini one, small one. Yeah. Just well, in your spare time. I know you don't have Oh, no, well, it will be all part of, of, of more than one. Okay, There's going to be brilliant. a huge thing about parenting in it, because, because you have to, part of your job as, as a parent is to represent the entire outside world to your child. That you're, you're like a virtual reality of the outside world that they get to test things on. And sometimes that means pretending to be a very boorish, sexist man in a club at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> did it work that? Did, did that? Oh yeah, because she couldn't think of anything to say. And then I went, well, then you must then go and put some jeans on. Like kind of like. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Uh, but now she's watched two years of RuPaul's Drag Race, and she can come back with something like that. And uh, at that point, I'm like, now you woo! may go. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Okay, who has the next question? Uh, well, that lady there who wanted to ask the question, then she didn't have the talking stick. And now you can have the talking stick. Where is it? No. Oh. Oh. Oh, don't Do be sad. No, I did, we did want to know. It was just that you didn't have the microphone, but you can come and borrow my microphone. Are you sure you don't oh. want to ask? Okay. Has the question gone back in? <laughs> <laughs> Is it like... Go on. The question's <laughs> coming back out again. Go on. I was going to ask a very lowering tone question about... <laughs> you think you can lower the tone more than I have tonight? <laughs> She wants to ask a very lowering the tone question. Do we think we can handle that? <laughs> I, think, I think that's very much the vibe here. Yeah, go on. Um, I was wondering, okay, there is a wonderful, um, I don't want to have too many spoilers. Yeah. There's a Borrow my mic. There's a wonderful, this is too much. Um, there's a wonderful <laughs> sexy moment yeah. in um, How to Be Famous, which involves the wearing of a pair of tights, yes. right? Which is, I think, possibly the only instance in literature that has involved sexiness and a pair of tights. So I do wonder, when you're writing those moments, those sexy bits, do you consciously... See, already there's Snickers, but I'm very interested. Do you, do you, kind of, do you consciously sort of go... Do you, do you write those moments differently? Do you mm. sort of look at... I have seen what the typical sexiness is, and I'm determined to subvert that. Mm. Or do you just... I, 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 
I don't want to get too That's okay. to ask. No, no, no. Do you, do you, do you type with one hand? <laughs> wow. question isn't it it's a very good question i'm glad you asked it i'm glad the I'm glad question came, came out. back out yeah. again yeah um so you're referring to all of chapter 34 um which i've had so many people coming up to me and going thank you for chapter 34 and then winking uh it's a very long sex scene it involves a pair of tights um and in that case i'd love to tell you it was a brilliant political thing or I sat down and thought about what would be the best way to describe sex or what sex should be like or what the future of sex should be but I simply transcribed something that happened to me in a hotel room about seven years ago. <laughs> oh. Oh, okay, are you satisfied with that answer? Mm, okay, it's a very that satisfying was a good answer. Year. <laughs> okay, we'll probably have time for a couple more. So there's a woman here in the front, it's two people there, so we we'll, we'll take these two questions uh, here. Over here. Where are the, the third row? So, so, yeah, great, thank you. Hi, hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask, do you think that the benefits of fame and like having a really big social following outweigh the negatives that come along with that? And like seeing how social media has evolved and how fame has evolved, if you could go back, would you want that or would you do things differently? Uh, it's weird, I've got like three quarters of a million followers on Twitter. And one of my favorite things about me is that I get less sexual abuse and trolling than any other woman on Twitter. Yay! Um, and that's because if you block about 200 yeah. people, yeah. they all, you know, you'd think the world is full of these terrible asshats. And there's actually only a few of them, and they run multiple bot accounts. So once you've blocked about 200 people, I find it very comforting to go around and tell women that the internet is a friendlier place than you think it is. It's actually a very small amount of people. Uh, making it unpleasant, and if you just block the right ones, it all just goes away, really. Mm. So it's not as bad as we think it is. Uh, I don't want to get too tinfoil hat conspiracy theory, but as, as these <laughs> stories emerge about what's been happening over the last couple of years with social media, and things like finding out that a 45% uh, stake in Twitter was bought by a Russian company uh, that are closely allied to Vladimir Putin uh, in the summer of 2012, which, if anybody was on Twitter in the summer of 2012, was suddenly where all the trolls appeared, and it was suddenly headline news that all the women were getting rape and death threats. And this was a year and a half after people had been talking about Twitter as being this new brilliant crucible of feminism, where women ruled and could talk about each other, and all these brilliant projects were happening. You know, I don't want to be too kind of, you work it out, kids. But it was, you know, did seem a bit like someone went, hang on, the women are mobilizing and using this. We must flooded with terrible people. Um, but if you block a couple of people, you know, you block some bots and most of it goes away, it's still, you know, and also we have to go, there's more of us than them. Like kind of, you know, we can't allow this brilliant global communication possibility to be taken over by bad people. You know, there's a point where you just have to stand there with a rolling, you just have to turn up and be a mum or a nana and just stand there with your arms crossed and a rolling pin going, no, fuck you, I'm gonna communicate with the world, screw you. And Thank you. Um, I feel like we haven't got a question up here, but I see someone's hand right up. Are there, are there microphones up there? Yes, there is. There's that lovely lady. Okay, there. so there's a, a hand outstretched to the <gasps> sky at the back. Oh, it's the most valiant hand I've ever seen. It's a seen. very valiant hand. 
You're the hand of hope. Is there, is there a microphone up there? You believed, even when all the microphones were down here, there. you were like, the microphones will come up here, and your belief was vindicated. So can somebody get a microphone to her? She's or? got it. I can She's see got it. it. Okay, great. I've, oh. <laughs> I've got the quickest ever human statement before I ask my question. Is that okay? <laughs> yeah, go for it. Yeah. Statement. My statement is that um, I feel like you were writing about Lady Gaga, and you said that she was the very thing, the absolute thing for teenage girls and I think you were the very thing the absolute thing for teenage girls because tomorrow is my 20th birthday and I can't imagine a better way to spend my last day as a teenage girl than in this oh space with you. <laughs> can you go up there? Can you, can you, normally just. I'm coming up to you. No, no. I really broke my bum on that bit but come down to the signing afterwards. I need to sing happy birthday to you. Like, kind of, I need to give you this hug. Will we, sing, will we all sing our happy birthday? Oh, yeah, hang on, yeah, hang on. Better than me just doing it. I think we could do this. Yeah. One, two, three. Happy birthday to you. What's your name? Happy birthday to you. Shout Tell it your name. name. Timmy. Birthday, dear Timmy. Happy birthday to you. What was her name? It sounded like Timmy. Okay. Okay, your name, your name isn't Timmy, is it? What is it? What's your name? Sorry, what? Your name isn't Timmy, is it? I guessed Timmy, but I don't my, think it is. My What's name your name? Jane. Jane? Yeah. No, okay, re-edit that in your mind and think that we all put Jane in there. That's okay. good. <laughs> Just like Inception. Like, ha I don't just believe that happened. Happy birthday, Jane. And I think that was a really beautiful thing that to say. That was gorgeous. Really Thank lovely. you. And what's your, your question? I'm crying now. Um, oh. I know, <laughs> I know. It's very hard. Um, my question is that um, how do you deal with the fear of saying the wrong thing when you're trying to say the right thing? Because even it was funny, you, you mentioned the pubic hair conversation because I remember reading criticisms of your chapter in How to Be a Woman about the pubic hair chapter because people were like, oh, because at the time it was very fashionable to be like, oh, like women should be able to do all these things. It's their choice to do Brazilians and wear nothing and blah, blah, blah. And you weren't, I know I'm rambling, but you weren't saying like, no, pointed at the downsides of, of waxing your fanny. Yes, yeah, so exactly. that's fairly, fairly <laughs> solidly, yes. And, and, you, and, and you just seem to say stuff that like, other people are thinking but are maybe perhaps afraid to say because everyone's got criticized for saying anything. Oh no, well you know, the, the fear is a massive thing, particularly if you're a woman, you're constantly, I read this thing about how, uh, we got a dog recently, we got a puppy, so I read all this psychology about dogs and it just made me think, oh my god, dogs are so much like humans, that's why we love them. So apparently a puppy will be watching its mother all the time and then when you have it, it's watching you, the owner, all the time. And if you just, it's so it'll do something, like start chewing you, um, and then it'll look at you. And if you just look away, it'll stop. It's con dogs are constantly checking other dogs out or their humans to see if their behavior is acceptable. And if someone looks away from them for a second, they'll stop doing that because the fear of rejection is so huge. They're very social animals. They're constantly regulating their behavior against other animals. And this is what we do, and particularly as women, we're constantly, everything we do, if there's a moment where we feel people are looking away from us in disapproval, we are terrified and we will stop doing that. Um, but the whole point of trying to invent a new way of being, you know, and trying inventing a future, being progressive, is that people are going to look away from what you're doing, they are going to be disapproving because it scares them, because it's new. So you just have to ride that out, um, and which I did 
by A, being incredibly morally brave, and B, by just being very drunk constantly. I mean, I can't, I can't overemphasize enough how very, very drunk I was when I was writing that book, and it really helped. I, kind of, I would just write with an absolutely stinging hangover. We just, oh, fuck it, I don't care. My tits hurt from how much cider I've drunk. I'm just, what could the patriarchy do to me that cider has not? I'm just gonna type it. Oh, good question, and happy birthday again. Yes. Um, probably have one more or something like that. So is there someone who really has a really burning, burning... Urethra. Cystitis type yeah. of... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Statistically, one in Probably of some of you do. Yeah. It's, it's okay. Is there anyone who really wants to Was that someone cheering because they have cystitis? <laughs> oh, mate, how are you out? How okay, are you here? There's a lady halfway down in with blonde hair... Oh Sorry? no, oh no, no. She's whoever standing, she is. has a talking stick. Yeah. Woman in black. That's oh, who I was. Is it not working? At. Okay. This might be the last one. Okay. okay. This woman on the balcony, is your mic working? Do we need to get another one to you? Oh, it's working. Okay, now. Two. okay these are the two. Okay. Yeah. No, okay. you can hear me. Sorry. Yeah, okay. Um at one point in the book, no. Johanna gets up and she says her her friend Suzanne gives her the opportunity at a performance to address the audience. And I found that incredibly moving because Johanna took a situation where she was somewhat crippled with shame and fear, and in her performance, she turned it around into a life-enhancing experience for the audience, which in turn gave her the energy. Where did you pull that out of? <laughs> you know, how did um, you do that? Well, I mean, I, you know, I guess that that, you know, that is, to be serious for literally one second, that is what I do. Um, I was raised with huge shame, um, as I think every woman is. Um, you know, I don't think it's unusual for a woman's default to be shame uh, and to feel that every time something bad happens to you, it's your job to be this huge Pac-Man just eating up pain and burying it in your stomach and just never letting it out again. And it gets to a point where you just go, well, am I just simply going to be like a big shame bin eating all these terrible experiences and keeping them inside me? Or am I going to stand up and talk about these things and let them out and see if anybody else feels like this? And we can hopefully just complete this layer of shame and stop having these conversations and just, you know, move on. Finally, but set fire to all the shame. Move on from this. We've discussed this. It's not a problem anymore. Let's move on. So that's why Johanna talks about her sexual shame. Like, kind of, you know, it's, it's a huge, you know, it's, it's inception again. It's a huge metaphor. Uh, she, you know, I, you know I, I had a massively sexually shaming experience as a teenage girl, and then I put it in, in the novel because, and, and I wanted to make it symbolic that her friend gives her the stage. She literally gives her the stage. She's about to perform a gig, her friend in this band, and instead of starting the gig, she goes, I'm going to bring my friend Johanna on now. She has something that she needs to say to you. And Johanna, who has been publicly sexually shamed for this thing that she's done with this famous guy, walks onto the stage. Actually, I don't want to spoil it, but she, she walks onto the stage and does something that means that she will not be ashamed of this anymore. She makes a decision that when you've been sexually shamed as a woman, the idea that you should carry the shame is insane because you have done nothing wrong. You willingly went and had sex with that guy or you were taken advantage of, but you have done nothing wrong. The sexual shame belongs to the person who did this to you. And there needs to be a moment where you just hand that back and go, I'm really sorry. This was given to the wrong person. The shame is yours. You are a sexual criminal.
And I, I think it is what you do. I mean, I think, on a, to be serious for one little yeah, second, yeah. but it is what you do, and it's, it's amazing, and thank you for it. No, thank and you. And there's one last question on the balcony, and, um, yeah. and then yes. we're going we're gonna to wrap it up then. Hello. Oh, Hello. sorry. It's working. I've, I had my hand up for so long. I'm so um, sorry. I did okay. see you're there now. Uh, the last two things. Question. I just want to say, um, if I had read How to Be Famous five years ago, I would have known exactly what to say when a boss said to me, um, so tell me about yourself. What does your husband do? Oh. Mm. I quit at one point afterwards, but at that moment, I told him what my husband did, and it was humiliating. And secondly... Uh, I always went, sorry, just whenever I'm asked that question, I always says, he murders sexists. Oh. That's... <laughs> and that if only I had seems known. Seems to... If only I had known. I, I, I kill myself every time I think about what I should have done. <laughs> and secondly, I just want to know, could you please tell the story about how you live-tweeted um, your first viewing of Sherlock? I know you previewed it. <laughs> I know you previewed it, but I'm, I know I've heard it on podcast before, but I'm not sure. I, mean, I definitely need to lighten the mood, so um, I loved the story, and I'm sure people will want to hear it. Okay, Thank you. Well, I will, well, I made a fundamental... So when Sherlock, I was the TV critic of the Times, and when Sherlock, uh, the series, TV series, uh, was finished, um, they sent me uh, DVD copies of it for me to review, and I watched it, and as I was watching it, it became very apparent to me that something very important was happening, which was that I was looking at Benedict Cumberbatch's face for the first time, and that, <laughs> and that this was changing my life, and it would change the lives of millions of other women, so, so this was a week before broadcast, so, so when... So this was a week before broadcast. So on the <laughs> night that it went out for the first time, I was like, well, I think it's part of my job as a communicator and broadcaster <laughs> to let women know that something amazing is about to happen to them. I will, I will take to my Twitter account and tell my three quarters of a million followers to get the fuck on BBC One and watch the shit out of this. Um, so I sat down, and because I knew it was quality drama from the BBC, I, I had a very big box of wine, because that's my, my quality drama wine. And... Um, I'd had a good quality pint of that, and <laughs> it started. And I started off being from the Times and being like, well, in my privilege as the Times TV critic, I can tell you there's some scrumptious drama coming up on BBC One. I think you'll enjoy the, the, uh, the direction and the photography, and the, the editing is superb. And by the way, Benedict Cumberbatch appears to be quite a promising young actor. Press send. <laughs> glug, 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 glug. So it starts, and there's the first <laughs> shot of Benedict Cumberbatch and his lovely character, and I'm just kind of like, oh, hello. <laughs> Are other women across Britain feeling as I am feeling, that this is a very pivotal coat that we're seeing right now? Press send. Go, 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 go. <laughs> Third tweet. Fuck me. <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch could make my face look like a painter in decorator's radio. Press end. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> that was the third one. No, no. Tweet three. That no. was just the third one. Now, unbeknownst to me... <laughs> Stephen Moffat, the writer of Sherlock, and Benedict Cumberbatch and the entire cast had gathered at Stephen Moffat's house uh, to watch the episode together. And Stephen Moffat follows me on Twitter. So, first tweet, shows it to the whole room. Look, Times, 
time, so the direction on this is really great. <laughs> Second one. She's really, she's lauding this classy drama. This is really good. Third one. Handed it straight to Benedict. <laughs> I didn't know any of this had happened until four weeks later, I went to interview Benedict Cumberbatch. <laughs> As they were shooting the second series and we, I'd been on set and then we, I was like, let's go into the interview. We went outside and we sat down at a picnic table and he was dressed as Sherlock and he was Sherlock, he was Sherlock. And, <laughs> and uh, so I sort of like rolled up a fag and I was smoking a fag, he went, can I have one too? And I was like, yeah, I'll roll you up one, here you go. And he went, I stopped smoking three years ago, but I have to admit, I'm, I'm very scared to meet you. <laughs> oh. Oh, that's that much. story actually goes on for another 20 minutes. I end up, <laughs> I end up going to his fucking house. It was, it was really, it was, it's a much longer story, but... <laughs> Oh, I'll do part two next time, I promise. It's literally oh. a half hour. It's a journey through madness. If you've ever seen Apocalypse Now, it's basically <laughs> like that, but my fanny is the Vietnam War, and... I just... I have to say thank you very much, Lady, yes, you asked you. that. <laughs> thank you. And now, I'm, I'm, I'm afraid... Now. What? Oh, right, no, we're no, no, yeah, we'll just go, no, yeah. Yeah, so we've, I was going to ask you one thing before we go. No, 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 it's all right, no, no. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Trump, I was going to ask you. No, no, no it's okay. all right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, then, I shall just do some parting words. Yes. Uh, go on, Jerry Springer, do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little message from me. Um, I don't know, I was asked to do this, and... I got the email and I, I just I told Callan I didn't reply straight away because I wouldn't want to appear too desperate. So I gave it what Callan calls a little lady pause to make it look like I had to check all the different things that I, I might have to do on this night, like go to the Late Late Show and watch Piers Morgan or something else. But um, I just was so, uh, so happy to be asked because we talked about meeting people that you admire in various different ways, and I really admire... I know you're not supposed to do this. I'm doing it at the end. Oh. I didn't start off with it, but anyway, you know. But um, Catelyn is somebody, I just think, in the world, who's a good force in the world, who's help, who is trying to help people. That's what she's trying to do, and she's pointing enthusiastically at things, and she's using her wisdom and her vast intelligence to make lives better. Oh, thank you. Women's lives better. Thank and, you. you know, we repealed the eighth again. And... And, and, women, and women like um, Catelyn Moran in England and Sally Hughes and Indian Knight and people who were cheering us on and who cried with us when, oh when the, the result came. Oh God, yeah. It meant a lot to us, um, that solidarity. And it just feels like someone like Catelyn Moran is always in our corner. You might not agree with everything. Yes. It doesn't matter. She's doing good and trying to be good. And she's fucking hilarious at the same time. <laughs> so um, I just wanted to give her an absolutely huge round of applause and say thank you. That's it. <laughs> hey, I'm standing up. You don't stand up. <laughs>